A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Welcome to the Meta Hour Podcast with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, visit www.beherenownetwork.com slash Sharon. Enjoy listening. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg. I'm so happy to be joined today by my colleague and friend, Sebene Selassie. Sebene is a Dharma teacher, writer, coach, and consultant. She began studying Buddhism over 25 years ago and has an MA from the New School, where she focused on race and cultural studies. For over 20 years, she worked with children, youth, and families nationally and internationally for small and large social justice and social change programs. She's the former executive director of New York Insight Meditation Center and is passionate about making the Dharma accessible and relevant for our times, teaches regularly online in New York City and nationally. Welcome to the Meta Hour. Well, I'm so happy to see you. I'm so happy to see you. It's been too long. It has been. Thanks for having me. Wow, you're welcome. What have you been up to? <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, well, I was just saying that I haven't traveled for a few weeks, which is really great. Um, but before that, traveling, teaching, um, writing, working on a book. So, um, yeah, life has been very sweet. Do you uh, still do coaching? Do you have individual people that you work with? You know, I was trained in a particular methodology of coaching that I don't really practice anymore mm -hmm. in that way. Uh, I mentor students one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and that is, it's informed by the coaching I was trained in, but it's, it's a mishmash of everything. Mm -hmm. It's called mishmash mentoring. I guess. <laughs> That's a good title. <laughs> you have to think of a tagline for that. Yeah, really. Mishmash mentoring. A little of everything. <laughs> <laughs> everything I've learned through having a life. <laughs> That's really funny. Mm -hmm. um, when you say traveling, I'm curious because I've, I recently, you know, been through this period where I didn't get on an airplane for two months and. I realize I don't count other things as travel, like car rides are okay and train rides are okay. But Oh, I count the, everything as travel. Everything. So you didn't go anywhere? I didn't go anywhere. Oh. I did not get on a bus or a train or a plane. Oh, how exciting. Yeah, it was great. It was really great. And it will be. I'm not, I'm not getting on any form of uh, public transportation or vehicular travel. Um, extensive, except for going upstate for a day, until mid-January. So I have some time to really nest and connect back to to Brooklyn. That's wonderful. Mm. <laughs> oh, Brooklyn. Oh, Brooklyn. That's travel for me. <laughs> yeah, that's like... true. <laughs> 
So when I, um, you know, was spending most time with you, you were um, executive director of New York Insight. You yes. Were, you were working in that world, and um, it's exciting that you're focusing on teaching in uh, more of that, that particular expression of, of everything you've studied. Yeah. Learning. Yeah, thank you. It feels like a great honor to be able to focus in that way. And um, I worked in really community uh, development, nonprofit management for most of my adult life. And so it feels kind of strange to not be responsible for an organization or, you know, a, a neighborhood or a whole community and um, to really kind of focus in on what is my particular voice and um, what am I wanting to share from all these years of experience, mm -hmm. yeah. And you are, uh, are you still on the board of the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies? I am. I'm on the board of BCBS for another year, mm -hmm. and I'm also on the leadership council of the Sacred Mountain Sangha, which is the organization that my teachers, Tanisar and Kitisara, oh, yeah. founded. Um, so it's their uh, American-based organization. So they just moved so many, so many Californias, To right? Sebastopol. Sebastopol, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so that, that right now is my main service is to those two organizations. You know, obviously I serve other communities in different ways, but mm -hmm. really those, those two right now. It's interesting because I was just thinking of uh, your trip to South Africa. Oh, my gosh, that was amazing. Yeah, so a group of us, um, uh, mostly black folks, um, but my husband was the token white guy, <laughs> um, we all went to South Africa uh -huh. and did a month-long retreat at Dharmagiri, their, their mountain retreat mm -hmm. center. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was incredible. It was really quite magical and profound uh, to be in silence in a community like that and doing a lot of really different kinds of practices than I think um, you know I, I've been used to in most mm -hmm. of my practice here. Yeah, So a lot of devotional practices and um, and some kind of um, different Chan practices that they that they teach. So they um, absorb. Would you say that they absorb that largely from their monastic background, well, the devotional part? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because they um, they were both monastics under Ajahn Chah and that mm -hmm. tradition, the Thai forest tradition, and um, but they they disrobed, um, mm -hmm. they fell in love and got married and, and left. It's such a funny term, disrobed. Like they took off their clothes. What? <laughs> Wait it's, a minute. It's, it's a good term when two people fall in love and, right. <laughs> and leave monasticism, though. Um, and they moved to South Africa and they were there for about twenty years, and um, they. You know, I think they had a chance to develop their own unique mm -hmm, um, flavor mm -hmm, of practice mm -hmm. um, because they integrated this Theravadan tradition, the monastic tradition um, from Thailand, but they also had already been Chan practitioners mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. so quite some time. And Kitisaro had met and studied with Master Hua. And, um, and then this South African relationship to the land um, and really connected to um, the, pe the people of the land there. So they kind of created this blend because uh, they were so off the map for so many years. Um, so what they do is, is, is quite unique, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And does that feel like a lot of what you do these days? Do you actually incorporate those practices? I do. I, I um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of funny, I think, as you deepen in your practice, I don't, I'm sure you've gone through many phases of this throughout your time, but, you know, you take what you get from your teachers. And sometimes in the beginning, I felt like I'm just kind of imitating people mm -hmm. and trying on their clothes and they don't quite fit. So I'm still kind of finding my way, especially mm -hmm. with the devotional practices where it doesn't feel like I'm sort of taking someone else's mm -hmm. practice mm -hmm. and trying to fit into it, but really feeling my way into like, well, what is my expression of this? 
So um, they they do a lot of devotional practices to Kuan Yin, um, which which resonate for me to a certain extent, but it, it's really not my my main mm-hmm. practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting because I you know of course was uh, I'm f- from that same tradition though not the same lineage, and so um, many people think of the Theravadan tradition, or you could say the School of the Elders. Um, as sort of dry and fussy, or you know, like, um, and there is a certain element of that, certainly around language. You know, it's so precise, and um, and I, I've come to appreciate that more as I've gotten older. You know, like what is the difference between desire and greed and intention? You know, we use the same word here, but uh, you know, they really break it apart. And most of my training was really um, either in Burma or from teachers who had studied in Burma. When I was in India, I've only been to Thailand, like the airport hotel, you know. Like, <laughs> uh, but since I know about it, um, uh, largely through Jack Cornfield and his relationship with Ajahn Chah, and, and then the right, and then Ajahn Chah himself, who came to visit IMS and um, his writings, uh, it's just uh, you could see it, see it as kind of like this radical reform movement to mm-hmm. what must have grown to be, you know, counter to the state religion when, it, when a, a, you know, here's the Buddha living in the forest, you know, under the roots of trees. And he himself was uh, an example of a radical, renewed spirituality, you know, that was very different. And, um, you know, but by the time it grows older and, and there's power and there's money and there's is all of that, then these movements keep happening, which is great. Mm-hmm. And the Thai forest tradition is certainly one of those. You know, we're um, we're off into the forest again, mm-hmm. and and there's a kind of um, simplicity around things. And also, Ajahn Chah was just a complete character. You know, mm-hmm. like at the Insight Meditation Society, I guess we must have had a course going on where people at the course he was teaching. Um, who were accustomed to say Burmese, some Burmese styles of practice, not all Burmese styles, but some have you slow down quite a lot when you walk, and it's very sort of intentional. Yeah, and meticulous. Deliberate, kind of, yeah. very meticulous. Mm-hmm. And, and so these people were like walking across the lawn really slowly, our students, and, and Ajahn Chai would go up and he'd say, I'm sorry you feel so sick. <laughs> I'm sorry you feel so weak. You know, I can't even walk. Like, May you feel better soon, you know. And then it had to be translated because it's in Thai. And people were like, whoa. And, you <laughs> That's know, hilarious. He'd say things like, I've seen chickens sitting on, you know, nests for days on end. How long you sit is not the point. Mm. Um, so it's quite very, radical, right? It's very radical. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, um, I visited Thailand and practiced there a little bit um, around 2000. And um, I... I didn't really, even though I studied religious studies and Buddhism in college, um, I didn't really know all these distinctions and these different lineages. Um, but what I just saw visually and impacted me was being in Bangkok or being in other places and seeing these elaborate temples and 
um, you know, wats with these golden Buddhas and statues and so many rites and rituals. And then going to where I went was Wat Swan Muk, which was Ajahn Buddha Dasa's mm-hmm. center. And it was just literally the forest. There was not a, you know, a Buddha image around except in the library and the books. And, and there were sort of these forest temples, you know, just these areas where you would be sitting in front of a tree or um, the, the main um, retreat center for Westerners was uh, just this platform with all these cushions that was covered for the rain, but in front of this pond. And, you know, you'd watch the moon rise. So it was really kind of just such a stark visual difference that, you know, then manifested in how you relate to the space and your practice. But um you could really see how radical these these Thai forest masters were in their approach and then what they taught, yeah. The one place where I think the Burmese have it over them in terms of um, certainly austerity was, um, you know, the the rule in, in monastic society uh, in, in Southeast Asia is that the monks and the nuns don't eat after noon or after the noon meal, and, and the lay people who are in intensive retreat follow the same rule, so... When we were in Burma, the lunch was served at about 10.30 in the morning. That was it. And they were really tough, like no tea after that, no milk, no uh, coffee. You know, mm, just No like chocolate? Get... No, no chocolate. <laughs> well. You can have um, Coca-Cola, which you didn't want anyway, and you mm. also couldn't get, and Tang, the breakfast drink of astronauts. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. Um, because when we brought Mahasi Saito, who's the head of the lineage over to the States, Someone gave him some tang, and he read the ingredients, and he said, "Hey, you can you can drink that." But apparently, in the Buddhist time, um, the monastics were feeling ill because they, you know, they hadn't eaten like in twelve hours, and um, so he allowed some substances just for indigestion, the kind of medicinal. So that was like ghee, and you know, clarified butter, molasses, sesame oil, and gourd, which is this hard brown sugar in India. Hmm. It's disgusting. Uh, so he allowed a mix of all that. So in Burma, they make that mix, and it's the only thing you can have oh, after like wow. noon, and it's so disgusting, but you're so hungry. <laughs> you just eat it. And somehow the ghee, the clarified butter, and the sugar evolved into for in the Thai forest tradition to chocolate and cheese. Mm-hmm. So the first time I saw that, I was like, wait a minute, anyone can live off chocolate and cheese <laughs> yeah. in the afternoon. What's that? That's the only place. That That's funny. Yeah, they are very funny. Mm-hmm. But it's a magnificent tradition, and tradition itself is very interesting, you know, because we're all an amalgam of everything that forms us. Right. Not only kind of in a strict Dharma meditative sense, but everything. And right. I can remember when we brought Upandita, who's a Burmese teacher, um, to IMS in 1984, and, he, you know, we had never met him before, uh, but we heard he was this really great teacher, so we brought him, and he was a great teacher. And also very tough and very demanding, very, like, um, strong. And it worked for me somehow, like, every time he said something, which he thought was encouraging, like, try harder, um, that translated into my mind is, oh, he thinks you can do it. He has faith in you. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it really mm-hmm. worked for mm-hmm. me in terms of relationship. But Do you think he adjusted the message depending on the person and yeah, what they could yeah, handle? Yeah, very much, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, they couldn't always handle it. That's the right. problem. But yeah, yeah, yeah. No, de- definitely. Because afterwards, I'd meet people. Some man who wasn't even in the, able to do the retreat. He was in the middle of like a terrible divorce, and um, Upandita just used to sit and hold his hand. Mm-hmm. You know, like that was oh, I love unthinkable that. to me. Yeah. You know, like really, 
Or yeah. once I was walking up the stairs um, for my interview, my meeting with him, which we had six days a week, just a brief meeting to describe our practice. And um, the door he was, the door to the room he was in was open. And I heard him say to the woman behind me, in front of me, who was having her interview, um, there is such a thing as too much effort, you know. And I almost fell backwards down the stairs, like, never said anything like that to me. Mm. Um, he was very, very personal with people. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that, because I, you know, sometimes I have, um, I haven't done a large retreat, like sat in a large retreat, and a large retreat, I'm talking about, you know, 100 people or so, mm-hmm. which are great because so many people get access to the practice that way, and there's no other way unless we had retreat centers all over the place yeah. um, for so many people to practice. But um, how, how do how do people receive kind of individualized instruction or create it for themselves. Like it feels like people have to really know themselves well and know mm-hmm. that some of what's being offered is not for them and, but then not to fall into their patterns mm-hmm. and just sort of do, you know, what feels right, which might just be a habituated, like, yeah. you know, yeah. like how do you, how do you think people should kind of relate to mm-hmm. such a, such a generalized teaching and then understand what's right for them? Well, in the ideal sense, if it's a long-term retreat, there's enough faculty, you know, right. so that you, you may be hearing a message in the hall, but you're meeting with somebody who's reminding you also that that's really important, that there's not just one way, mm-hmm. you know, that the idea is really kind of balance, and balance is always going to look different. There are times when we're we are overwrought, we're hypervigilant, we're trying way too hard, and balance is going to look like take a walk, would you, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. or like... Just let's settle back. Mm-hmm. Um, as I used to say to myself in my earliest practice, let the breath come to you. You know, because I was like so freaked out all the time. But then there are times when we have not nearly enough engagement or effort or heartfulness and, mm-hmm. you know, real presence, and we have to come forward more. And so that needs to be a place where you're guided usually. Because mm-hmm. you're, right, you're right, of course, we have so many habits. Mm-hmm. Over time, I think... We'll know the answer ourselves anyway because right. we just we feel it. But um, and we're we're honest with ourselves huh? over time. I think like with enough discipline yeah. and and momentum, like you start to see when you're shortchanging yourself or yeah, doing things out of habit only. You know, someone was sitting with Upandita when even for me with a really good relationship with him, it was getting to the edge. You know, like I was I was starting to get really stressed and trying too hard, and I had. Uh, two mantras. One just came to me, which was, um, the teacher is there to serve you. Mm. You know, like I actually wasn't there to please him. Mm-hmm. You know, he was there to mm-hmm. help me. And that was important because, you know, there's this figure, you're seeing him six days a week, you're, you're describing your experience, you're being open, you're being honest. And um, and he was such a tough person, you know, like in, in so many ways, like, he also had a habit of he wouldn't use anyone's name, but he would quote somebody often. Like, today a yogi came to me and said, you know, <laughs> so one night he said, uh, today a yogi came to me and said, waiting to see me, waiting outside my room to see me is like sitting waiting for the dentist. <laughs> <laughs> and I was there sitting and thought, who said that? You know, like, because it's true. <laughs> and then it turned out to have been Joseph. You know, <laughs> said it, you know? Um, honest Joseph. Honest Joseph, yeah. yeah. Guileless Joseph. So, uh, you know, so that was one. I'm just reminding myself of that. And then the other was actually a line out of Suzuki Roshi, which is interesting because um, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind had been a very important book for me. And 
uh, it was sort of the opposite message of Upandita, but taken together within me, they formed a whole, which was, I was doing walking meditation, and the line from Suzuki Roshi was something like, um, we practice not to attain Buddhahood, but to express it. <laughs> and I realized that taking effort as yearning for something else to be happening and wanting to make it so and strategizing and trying, it was the wrong effort. Mm -hmm. But the effort to perfectly express in this moment my Buddha nature, all that I am, or however you want to say it, that was the right effort. Mm -hmm. So that certainly didn't come from anything Pandita said, mm -hmm. you know, but it was within me already. And so... Um, I often think about this, like this over-efforting... Um, especially in our culture, because mm -hmm. I don't know if you, um, you know, Reggie Ray, the, um, mm -hmm. he was a student of Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche, and he has this book um, that I can't remember the name of now, uh, but it's, it's all on embodiment. Yeah, and, yeah. and he, I think it's called Touching Enlightenment. And he, he says in it that he thinks that perhaps some or many of the Asian masters who um, you know, have these Western students who started to mm -hmm. uh, create centers and traditions, new traditions in this country, that they might have underestimated kind of the, the cerebral or head-centered mm -hmm. kind of um, orientation of Western students and that we need to kind of re-embody, like we're mm -hmm. disconnected from our bodies and, and they didn't really get that. And, and I don't know if it's true. Like I don't know if they if they didn't, but it's it's sometimes I think it it could be true of the efforting too mm -hmm. that there mm -hmm. was sort of this this way of teaching that um, might have been around more effort that we actually don't need to hear as much. Yeah, yeah. Like no, I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, you know, like it, it might have been fine for me to have Upandi to say try harder. It wasn't fine for a lot of people. Right, because they're so used to that yeah. anyways. And yeah. I notice that in students that there's still like, even people who've been practicing for years and get it on an intellectual level that there's no getting somewhere else. Like mm -hmm. they're, they're still trying to get somewhere or mm -hmm. make something else happen. And this it's this constant like, maybe that's the emphasis on letting go, but people... Mm -hmm people kind of misinterpret the letting go. Like they mm -hmm. think that the letting go is still like trying to make something else happen. <laughs> like, yeah. But yeah. it's it's sort of stepping back and, and resting that yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of people, I think, need to hear in this culture. Well, Sonny Rinpoche, who's a Tibetan I've you know more recently practiced with, um, it, and you know, he and Reggie are friends, but the, um, uh, what he would say, I think, is that they be they believe they have kind of a, a model of a subtle body, you know, like not just the physical body, but like a subtle body. It's an energetic body, kind of, and that's what's all messed up with us. Hmm. And so um, it's like, you know, the weird things, like if you go to an acupuncturist and your knee hurts and they put the needle in your shoulder and it feels better, you know, mm -hmm. it's like mm -hmm. there's some connection through these channels and so on. And so, um, you know, from his point of view, as much as I understand it, Sonia Ruche, there's no amount of cognitive understanding that's going to resolve the the energetic problem. You have to resolve it on that level. Mm -hmm. And certainly you can do that through practice. Um, and that's also why, you know, people get a lot of benefit from something like acupuncture or, or qigong or yoga or whatever um, as a means to sort of rebalance that energy. Right. And we have this, like, collective subtle body. Yeah. Like, there is this, like, 
collective energy that fuels this culture that is very different than um, what you would find in, in, at least at that time, in Thailand or Burma or India, um, that I think that we're sort of understanding more maybe now. So what do you think the collective subtle body is of America? Oh, my God, so screwed <laughs> up. <laughs> well, I think there's a lot around this... Um, this kind of frenetic energy. There's there's so much anxiety, mm-hmm. and now I've been listening to and reading about <clears throat> like how much anxiety is skyrocketing um, in in younger generations. So not just you know there's more in Gen Xers and more than in Millennials, and then more even mm-hmm. in the in Gen Z. I guess they are. They have astronomical rates of anxiety and <clears throat> um, and even suicide and. Um, so, you know, there's something about that uh, collective energy of, of not right, you know, not feeling right in some way. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the causes are. There probably are many. I'm, I'm sure, like, school f- shooting drills aren't helping. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know, these young people growing much. up with that. Um, but, yeah, there, there is. There's a lot of anxiety and tension in our culture, I think. So when you hear, like, oh, when I hear, you know, things like um, there's an epidemic of loneliness, mm-hmm. um, you know, I wonder how widespread that is in American culture, which is so varied anyway, right? Right. Um, but it seems like it's on the rise as... That's what the statistics yeah. are showing. Yeah. yeah. That it's, that they, they think they are technically calling it an epidemic. Yeah. You know, uh, it seems to me that as different institutions sort of wane in terms of their influence and cohesion. Yeah. And as, as communities get fragmented and, yeah. you know, how, how rare it was even 50 years ago for people to live so far away from families. And, and now you have this phenomenon. I, I know it among a number of my friends, and it, it happened to me too, that a parent gets sick and people are having to fly thousands of miles to help support mm-hmm. the parent or the siblings who live closer. And this kind of, um, you know, just this, this, uh, dislocation from from place and community is it has a profound effect i was talking to my best friend yesterday peter who lives in canada and um you have a lot of i went to school undergrad in in montreal and so i have a lot of friends who live in toronto um because all my anglophone friends moved back to mm-hmm. ontario um and you know he was giving me an update on all our our friends and what they're doing and no one is traveling more than like a hundred miles for the holidays because they all still live near wow, their families and um, you know it's just not true for for immigrant communities. You know, for me, born in Ethiopia, my family is diasporic. We're all over the world, and and that's true for all my friends from mm-hmm. various countries. And but even my American friends, you know, a lot of them have family on either coasts or live in you know it's another northern or southern part of a state, hundreds of miles away from their family. So, yeah, I'm sure that's a a big factor. Just that. Um, you know, the dissolution of that sense of community. How did you first get interested in meditation practice and when? I um, first got interested in meditation when I was in high school. My brother became what's colloquially known as a Hare Krishna when I was 15. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, I started going to the O Street Temple in D.C. with him and um, chanting and kirtan and doing some reading. And then I quickly um, started getting more interested in Buddhism. So when I got to college, 
uh, I decided to major in comparative religious studies and started um, studying um, mostly early Buddhism and Hinduism. And then uh, I didn't really start practicing, practicing until I graduated. So I was about 21, 22 and started sitting Zen first. Um, and then many years later came to the insight tradition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's a long time. You would think I'd be a much better student by now, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's some, it, it kind of sort of saturated me from, from young age. That's famous. Well, those years go by very quickly. Yeah, you know? they, just, they keep going by. So, oh, wow. It's so true. Yeah. You know, and everywhere I'm introduced, those numbers are so alarming. Like, you know, <laughs> how many years have you been practicing? Oh, my God. Now they just say over 40. That's better. You know, like, wow, that's a long time. Yeah. That's a long time. I would say, I think I've been practicing for 20 something years now. I don't know. I don't know. Like, my very first retreat was many years after. I mean, I did some short sessions in, in the city, but um, my first you know, silent meditation retreat was actually a Gwenka retreat in 1998, uh, 1997. So 21 years ago, I did my first 10-day, which um, was really rough. Yeah, but, you know, so illuminating in, in many mm-hmm. ways. I st- Gwenka was my first teacher. I know, so, yeah, I know, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was such a profound experience. It was I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I mean, I'd heard about them and I'd had friends who'd done them, but um yeah, those sits of determination really got me. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. I can remember at IMS once, um we brought this very another very great Burmese meditation master, Tom Pulusaida, for a visit and teaching and um we were sitting up in one of the rooms and uh Someone asked him. He was also known for being very austere. Like he didn't, he didn't lie down. He slept sitting up in a oh my goodness, like an armchair, you know, a puffy like armchair. Uh, but we had a bed in the room for him. And he laughed. You know, he said, "Take it out." Uh, so he wasn't like a, you know, he wasn't indulgent in any way. He was he was very strong. But uh, somebody we were sitting there. And somebody asked him. They said something like. Um, when I meditate, I start getting terrible pain in my body. I don't know what to do. And so Tom Pusaida pointed to one of those armchair kind of things, lounge chair, and he said, as soon as you feel the pain, you should get up and go sit in one of those. Mm. And I thought, where were you? <laughs> like when I was sitting with, <laughs> yeah. going, I was sitting with strong determination is one of not moving, and it's like endless. And if you're not used to sitting on the floor, and it was just, oh, it was like so painful. And I just moved anyway, so <laughs> truth be told, but... Um, there was a lot to be learned from that as well, but I thought, where were you when I was like crying and you know, like, and he explained it. It was very interesting to me as a teacher. You know, he said, um, he had a kind of principle value that he, a quality he wanted to help people establish in first. And when they were strong in that, then they could kind of spread and work with other things. So his, his main quality was tranquility. He wanted people to mm. experience deep tranquility. Mm-hmm. And once you had some sense of that, then you could challenge yourself in different ways mm-hmm. with determination and mm-hmm. resolution and all of that. And I began to think, well, maybe many or most teachers do do that, you know, that we have a principal quality that we're really trying to help strengthen mm. as the platform before people move on to others. And hmm. I just didn't happen to have any ones that were into tranquility. Do you have one? Well, I would probably say it's a kind of meta. It's a kind of loving mm-hmm. kindness now. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and that that would be the tool you can bring with you mm-hmm. as you then, you know, do more difficult things or uh, pay attention to more difficult places or whatever. Yeah, oh, that's great. Yeah, I think I think as you're saying that, I was wondering what mine is, and I think it's ease. Because mm-hmm. as you were talking about not lying down, I I I really encourage students to do lying down meditation. Yeah, yeah. You know, and some people it's hard because they fall asleep so easily, and you know it's it's not. They probably need naps, but or more sleep. But um, there's something for me. It's it's my primary practice that about lying down and feeling fully supported, where I'm not exerting any extra effort and <clears throat> keeping myself upright. <clears throat> yeah, I just find that so powerful that I, I think that that's the quality I'm trying to encourage is that sense of like ease and support. Mm-hmm. And then you can take that into whatever situation. Yeah, yeah that's great. Well, let's talk a little bit about your book. Um, yeah, so I'm writing a book on uh, belonging. Yeah, it's going to be called Born to Belong. And um, and thank you for your feedback on the proposal and some of the ideas are really helpful. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm exploring this um, tension that I feel and see between the truth that we're not separate, that everything is connected and looking at both um, the scientific facts around that, but also the indigenous wisdom mm-hmm. and, you know, the ancient understanding of that truth. And then this reality that we all have these complex identities and, um, you know, belong to different groups and there is a history history of injustice and separation. And so how do you sort of rectify these two realities mm-hmm. of, you know, this absolute connection, interconnection mm-hmm. and this relative um, separation and create a sense of true belonging that can reconcile the two. So I'm going to try and do that um, in, you know, eight chapters. <laughs> <laughs> And really make it relevant um, also for questions that young people have today mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. you know, our political crisis and our social crises. And, um, yeah, so hopefully it will be profound but fun. Oh, and easeful. <laughs> and easeful, exactly. Yeah. No, that's that's great. I mean, it's quite a task. It's, it's uh, quite an issue, you know. Yeah, yeah. It is It is such an issue, but um, it, it feels like, the the um, kind of the most gripping question for me now is I see there's so much amazing education and inf- there's a lot of information out there, but um, we can fall into two traps. We can fall into like, oh, we're all one and kind of a spiritual bypass of, mm-hmm. of ignoring these issues, or we can get entrenched in these groups or these identities or um, in these uh, politics or these issues and and not want to, to connect to the idea that, or the fact that mm-hmm. we're all interconnected. And, you know, you sort of, if this question of belonging if you really want to to delve into it, you have to accept that you belong to everything and everyone. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's no calling people trash, you know, the, or or, mm-hmm. or 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 kicking anyone out of our heart. And that that that's everyone. That's a really hard thing to reconcile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is very hard. I mean, you, at the beginning of that exploration, I think is is the realization, and for some people, it's a really shocking realization that. You know, they may consider themselves one thing, and other people have a very different story about them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I I know, you know, several parents um, who had um, international adoptions, 
or whose children are biracial. Mm-hmm. And the uh, way they view the child is, could be very different from the way the child actually ultimately views themselves right. because of what they encounter on the street, you know, mm-hmm. or in school or something mm-hmm. like that. And mm-hmm. It's often like a big shock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, you know, it's, it's really a lot about getting used to the paradoxes yeah. of yeah. what are, what are relative experiences and what the absolute yeah. truth is. Yeah. And, you know, how, how do you, like, we have to get comfortable with paradox if we want to, to truly belong to each other and, and solve any of this. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. And I'm also uh, really open to any tips from anyone who's written a lot of books. Hint, hint. <laughs> You were giving me a tip today, so back to those programs I never bothered to learn because I was too busy writing. I don't even know how to type, you know. This is oh, I don't know later. how to type either. Oh, absolutely. I, I type with two fingers. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's really embarrassing. Like, I, I think that's the main reason why I don't like to work in cafes. <laughs> so I would reveal Everyone that I'm like a toddler <laughs> at my computer. Yeah, but I, you know, I still type. I Obviously, I'm not going to win any typing contests, speed contests, but... Um, I still type fairly fast, and I take comfort that my dad has written numerous books w- with two-finger typing. So, All right. Yeah. <laughs> it's the lineage. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, it's very exciting because I think we have to get comfortable with paradox for many a thing, you know. Like right. In our time, different. Uh, one, something I wrote, you know, uh, I'm also typing out a, a book very slowly. Um you know, like, what do you say to someone who's been harmed in terms of compassion for a perpetrator? Mm-hmm. Or what do you say, what to do with their anger? You know, or what? there's a lot of paradox in this world. And there is. And there's a, there's there's room for endless compassion. Yeah. And, and that requires really, um, you know, attending to our own pain first mm-hmm. uh, so that we're able to hold that. Um, you know, we all live in cycles of karma mm-hmm. and uh, it's really hard. It's really hard to accept that someone is the way they are because of what they have experienced and yeah. encountered. And, you know, it's almost, I, 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 this could get me in trouble and I'm trying to play with how I say this, but it's almost arrogant to think that they would be any different. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that we don't try and change the situation, but, you know, to assume people will be different from what they're trajectory has brought them yeah, to yeah, yeah. is and and that we would be any different if we had the exact same trajectory yeah. i used to do this um this seemed like you know simpler more innocent times but i used to do this meta for george w bush because i was so enraged at, at that time and i would not do sort of traditional meta phrases but i would um imagine his life from conception to that date and mm-hmm. so i would do this over and over again every day and cuz conceptually i could understand oh i would be george bush if i grew up like george bush but mm-hmm. as an embodied practice to be like okay i'm in the womb of barbara bush you know and i'm i'm growing up in this culture in this community in this family and and it it just kind of hit me as true insights often do one day i was like oh i would be george bush it would be him and I think it takes that level of like putting on another person's reality to understand where they're at. And then from there, like, how do we engage? And, you know, I, maybe I'm, you know, Pollyannish or idealistic to think that that's possible, but I really, I truly feel that's our only way out is to have that mm-hmm, level mm-hmm. and then engage and fiercely engage with fierce compassion to change things. But from that, from yeah, that position, yeah, yeah. you know. 
And it's not even, well, yeah, it's like taking a stand instead of taking a side. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, because then you're really taking a stand yeah. for, for what you yeah. believe in. Yeah. Now, I, I, I've taught, you know, many times with Sylvia Borstein, and one of her favorite phrases is uh, something like, Everyone's just doing the best that they can. And I usually sit there and think, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) Really, they could do a lot better from my point of view. And she'd say it over and over. Everyone's Mm -hmm. just doing the best that they can. I'm like, But of course, there's there's a truthfulness there because if they could do better, they would. But all of us can be so held back by ignorance and confusion and the myths we have taken on and the lives we believe and everything. Right. And, And so... And I read uh, Maya Angelou's version of it was something like, um, uh, when you see better, you do better. And yes, I thought, oh, yeah, that that's I can t- that great. I, can t- you know? I love that. You could like combine the two. Yeah, yeah. And it, th- those are such deep teachings yeah. because, you know, for me, I found the the place I had to start with this understanding was in my own my own experience and realizing that my parents were doing the best they could. Yeah. They yeah. really, they were not capable of doing any better. If yeah. they, they yeah. could have, they would have, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and that doesn't mean that, you know, till the very end, I didn't have challenges with my mom or still have challenges with my dad, but um, it's, it, it's continually coming back to that. I think mm-hmm. in our, in our own history and our own personal reality that helps it prepare us for, you know, the, the, the crap show outside. Yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just in, in Hawaii uh, and visiting Ramdas, and he he always used to tell these stories about how really in the old days he used to have a photo of Donald Rumsfeld on his puja table, you know. Oh, that's great. Of saints and all these people, and it would be like every morning he would say, you know, hello, Maharaji, and, you know, blessings unto you from uh, Ananda Mayama, and then he'd say, hi, Donald, you know. <laughs> so... <laughs> And so I, I took a sneak peek at his puja table, and sure enough, there was our president. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, he's trying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it, it, I, it, and and sharing that, you know, really sharing that, and it, it's, it feels like um, a really challenging stand to take. Because it goes against what um, so much of the rhetoric is on, on mm-hmm. you know, our supposed side as well, you yeah. know. So I'm wondering if you have an ease-filled practice you'd like to lead us yeah, in. Yeah, sure. I'd Great. love to. So um, really allowing yourself to settle into the body. So whether you're sitting or standing, allowing yourself to feel the support underneath you. So really sensing the felt sense of the chair or cushion or floor. Perhaps taking a few breaths in and out intentionally. Breathing in and out through the nose. And as you settle into whatever posture you've taken, just take a moment to notice any sensations or vibrations.
Noticing the body right here, right now, and resting your awareness on the body. As your body rests in this posture, Just recognizing that you have this capacity to bring your awareness to the body in this easeful, relaxed state of natural awareness. Inviting you, if it feels comfortable, to rest your awareness on the breath. Noticing this natural process of the inhale and exhale. Not needing to choose or reject any experience other thoughts or sensations or emotions. But using the breath and the body as a place to rest your awareness whenever your, your attention is distracted or lost. In any moment, you can ask yourself what's happening now. And always you can re-relax into this awareness of body or breath. Remembering that getting lost or caught in thought, in planning or remembering, critiquing or judging, it's not a mistake. It's not a problem. We can bring this natural and easeful way of paying attention to whatever is happening. Remembering the body and the breath are always in the present moment and can anchor us back into this natural awareness 
of right now. In any moment throughout your day, throughout your week, you can rest awareness on the body and breath as a way to bring ease, a sense of well-being to your experience. In any moment, you can ask what's happening now, and you can allow your experience. Ding. well thank you so much for coming thank you for having me Sharon so great to see you it's great to see you thank you for spending this time with us if you'd like to learn more about Sebene's work and teaching visit her website at www.sebenesselassie.com that's S-E-B-E-N-E S-E-L-A-S-S-I-E dot com Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her ongoing teaching schedule, please visit her website at SharonSalzberg.com. <laughs>